The reading is from Acts chapter 1, and we're reading from verses 1 to 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, for which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you. We thank you for these words. We thank you for your spirit, for inspiring Luke. And now we pray that that same spirit would inspire us as we listen, that you'd speak to us now, that we might encounter you in Jesus' name. Amen. Various people have said something like, Blessed are those who expect nothing, for they shall never be disappointed. As Chris pointed out a couple of weeks ago, Jesus often asked people the question, what do you want me to do for you? At first, it seems like a bit of a stupid question. One of the people that he asked that question to was blind. It's pretty obvious. But what do you really want? Most of you know that I've not been well since Christmas. I've got something probably called Meniere's disease, which affects my inner ear and balance and dizziness and things like that. There's no cure, but thankfully the treatment reduces the symptoms to a level where I'm able to work, which is good, probably. We think so. Particularly for the ministry team. Would I like God to heal me where medical science cannot? Of course I would. Or would I? The thing is, human beings are complicated. The book that uh, these values, these five values that we're, we're, we've been preaching through, Chris and I, over the last five weeks, the guy called Phil Potter says this. On the one hand, we can be really suffering with physical, mental, or spiritual sickness and long to be healed. On the other hand, we can secretly cling to our sickness because it doesn't make demands of us in other ways. I'm not saying it's one or the other, The tricky part is that often it's both. We can long for God to take away the thing that hurts, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual, while at the same time clinging on to it because it's become part of who we are. It's normal. It's part of the story that we tell about ourselves. 
Here's a frivolous example. The England cricket team. I very much enjoyed going to see them play on, uh, on Monday last week with my best man. It was fabulous. Do I want them to win test matches? Of course I do. Would I miss complaining about another one of their batting collapses? Their inability to take 20 wickets on a flat pitch? Their over-reliance on Joe Root? Of course I'd miss complaining. I'm English. <laughs> Human beings are complicated. And that's one reason why, and it, and it really shouldn't come as a surprise to us, it's one reason why Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you, isn't actually that stupid. It demonstrates wisdom and insight. What do you want from God? Really? Today, as I said, we're thinking about encountering God. And uh, often the encounter that we look for comes out of what we want. When we pray, we lay it all out for God often, don't we? We, we want answers to our questions. We want peace for that country. We want healing for this person. We want to see God release her from addiction. We want to bring him to faith. We want that person to be comforted as they mourn. We look and we long to encounter God in those things and more. And they're good prayers to pray. They're good things to ask God for. So why wouldn't he answer those? Why wouldn't he answer those prayers in the way that we want him to? The disciples were doing exactly that when they asked Jesus in verse 6. They gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Their question was actually many questions in one. Are you going to stop the oppression of God's people? They were asking, are you going to bring justice for the poor? Are you now going to do what God has been promising to do for generations? I don't know what questions that might include for us today, perhaps about Ukraine, although let's not forget all the non-European countries that are also struggling with war. Are you going to make sure no one goes hungry this winter, Lord? When the cost of living really bites, are you going to bring healing? When the disciples asked their question, they asked our questions as well. Why? Why not? When? And to them, and by extension to us, Jesus said this, verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That answer contains Jesus' final words to his disciples till he returns, of course. And they are worth dwelling on. At first, we might find it a sort of unsatisfying answer. A bit like Jesus' so-called stupid question to the blind man. What do you want me to do for you? The Bible contains many, if we're honest, unsatisfying answers to difficult questions. The thing is, though, if I could understand God's ways, if I could grasp his thoughts, if I could comprehend who he is, he would not be worthy of my worship. I can't even understand my wife. <laughs> and I worship her. But it's true. 
One of my friends at university used to say to me, she, was, she studied theology with me, and she used to say, how can you believe in something so ridiculous as the Trinity? And I said to her, how can I believe in something I can understand? Because then it's not worthy of my worship. Too often we reduce God to a broken vending machine. We put in the coins of our prayers, and then we're disappointed when we don't get the dairy milk answers we thought we'd paid for. Friends, if we hope to encounter a God like that, if we look for a God who turns up when we pray on demand, like Netflix, and leaves us alone when we don't want it anymore, then like those first disciples, we will be disappointed because such a God does not exist. That is not the God we worship. The disciples wanted God to do what they wanted, not least because what they wanted was a good thing. But they wanted God on their terms. They wanted God to do what they thought he should be doing. And Jesus' answer shows where we must begin if we want to encounter the living God, the true God, the God who actually exists rather than God we make in our own image. It is not for you to know, he says, verse 7. If we want to encounter the true God and Father, We must begin with humility. To encounter the God who is actually worthy of worship, we need to stop doing so much telling and start doing some more listening when we pray. I don't pretend that's easy. In fact, it's extremely hard. The disciples, I mean, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment here. Jesus had come back to life from the dead. They'd been devastated. Then Jesus came back from the life and he presented, uh, it says, many convincing proofs that he was alive over 40 days. He spoke to them about the kingdom. They were getting more and more excited. And then he, you know, gets lost again. He was taken up, verse 9, and hidden from their sight. And then, not a lot. I mean, it it sort of carries on in chapter 1. They choose Matthias to replace Judas, who's killed himself. And they spend some time in prayer. But nothing happens. I wonder what they prayed in those days. I wonder how they felt in those sort of in-between days. Jesus was gone. He hadn't done what they wanted. They must have been a bit confused, probably. Disappointed, certainly. Frustrated, if they were anything like me. See, the thing is, the Bible contains an awful lot of waiting. If you read, particularly in the Old Testament... It could be Abraham waiting decades for a son. Joseph in prison for years for a crime he didn't commit. David being anointed king as a young man. And then spending most of his adult life being chased around the hills, living in caves. What about Elijah waiting for the rain to come back in the drought? Daniel in exile waiting for God to come and rescue his people who were in Babylon. And many more besides. There's an awful lot of waiting in the Bible. Do you ever wonder why? Do you ever wonder why? Why should it be any different for us? We're so impatient with God. Today in in our reading, Jesus tells his disciples, what does he tell them? Wait. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I don't pretend it's easy to wait. They only had to wait 10 days, actually, in the end. It was only 10 days. 
Sometimes we're waiting much longer. Sometimes many weeks, months, maybe even years, like those in the Old Testament that I mentioned. Sometimes we're waiting for God to do this, when actually he's busy over there doing that, and we're so distracted by this thing that he's not doing, that we miss what he is doing over there. If only we might turn and see. 20 years ago, I visited a place called Lesotho, which is entirely surrounded by South Africa. We spent a few days in a place called Mokotlong, up in the Drakensberg Mountains. Lesotho has clicks in it, and there's a click in the middle of Mokotlong, but I can't do it, so I apologize. 10,000 feet high. Mokotlong is 100 miles from the nearest electricity, so there were no streetlights. There was no moon either, which meant it got very dark at night. One night, as I was stumbling back from the church, where we'd been doing some training on grief and listening skills, I was wishing I had a better torch to light up the path so that I could see where I was going. And then I happened to look up. And what I saw in the sky took my breath away. Because across the sky was a band of stars. There were so many that they merged into one, becoming, as it were, a Milky Way. And I realized why it was called the Milky Way. And then I saw all the stars around them, that just countless. And I remembered Abram's looking up at the stars when God said to him, I will give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky, which is a bit of a lame promise in Britain, unless you're in Scotland or somewhere like that where there's no... You know, you look up here, you maybe see a few dozen stars. There are so many, they merge into one in the Milky Way. The disciples wanted a better torch like I did. Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They thought that was their big vision, a better torch. But Jesus wanted to give them the Milky Way. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Forget Israel. Well, not forget Israel. That's just the beginning. The disciples also, did you notice... They wanted God to do all the work. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel, they said. But Jesus had other ideas. He said, no, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Friends, it's too easy to slip into a a way of thinking that tries to make God part of our story. When actually, he is inviting us to be part of his story. It's the other way around. Do you see the difference? It's too easy to slip into a way of thinking that tries to make God part of our story when actually he is inviting us to be part of his story. Now, I'm sure that none of us actually thinks of God in our minds. I don't know how you picture God, even if you do, as a heavenly sky fairy with a magic wand to wave over our problems when we have difficult situations. I'm sure none of us think of God like that. And yet, in our thoughts and prayers, can we sometimes not treat him like that? Do we not do that? I think so. We so easily slip into constantly asking, even demanding things of God. Now, of course, we must, and the Bible encourages us to present our prayers and requests to God with thanksgiving. We must be real with him to present our concerns. Those are important things to do. But 
we must also listen and ultimately submit ourselves to him. Jesus changed his disciples' perspective. He invited them to place themselves in God's story to the ends of the earth. Now, I was once invited to take a step backwards off the top of a 60-foot high wall. Don't worry, a hand upset, Jess. <laughs> she wasn't trying to get rid of me. It was a team-building exercise. And, of course, the instructor, just before telling me to do that, had fitted me out with various pieces of equipment and very uncomfortable harnesses and things, so that when I stepped backwards, I was able to abseil off the wall instead of falling to my death. When God invites us to become part of his story, he doesn't expect us to do it in our own strength. Notice the order in which Jesus answered his disciples in verse 8. First, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Second, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. First comes the Spirit, then comes the witnessing. Earlier, Jesus put it like this, for John baptized you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, I know Christchurch isn't a particularly Anglican church, but sometimes in Anglican churches, baptism is associated with sprinkling water on babies' heads. I'm a fan of baptizing babies, but I prefer them to get extremely wet. Because the word baptized doesn't mean sprinkled, it means soaked, drenched, plunged into the water. The word power, you will receive power, Jesus says. That word power is dunamis, from which we get words like dynamic and dynamite. Jesus is not talking about the morning pep of a cup of coffee, but an explosion of life from the Spirit. That transforming power of the Holy Spirit turned those disciples who were still huddled in that upper room. They were praying, but they were still in the upper room into people who overflowed with life and love and who couldn't help but be witnesses to Jesus and what he'd done in their life. They were weak, but he was and still is strong. And his power is made perfect in our weakness. God gives us all we need to be part of his story. That transforming power of his Holy Spirit Maybe think of it on these hot days as a never-ending stream or water of life. Doesn't mean things will be easy. According to church tradition and various historical records, every single one of those people to whom Jesus was talking but one was martyred for their faith over the coming years. As they did what Jesus had told them to do, they bore witness to Jesus and they were killed for it. But they were part of something big. They were part of God's story. Because of them, because of the blood of these martyrs and others, the church is built. They lived out the life Jesus gave them his way. On his terms, with him as Lord. Goodness me, isn't that difficult to do? God's story is real and it is true. He invites us to join him and he sends his spirit to transform and shape us into the people he's calling us to be. Now, some of you may well be screaming at me inside your head right now. I'm sure that happens quite a lot. If this is all true, why don't we see more of it? Why don't we see more of his transforming power? 
Why don't we see people's lives changed and transformed? It's a good question. It's not an easy one to answer. Sometimes, for whatever reason, there is what feels like a lull in God's activity among us, whether it's a few days, like the disciples waiting for Pentecost, who spent the time praying. There's another lesson for us while we wait. Or whether it's many years, like the examples I gave from the Old Testament. I mean, Joseph was in prison for 18 years. It's not always the answer we want to hear, but sometimes God says, wait here. Patience is hard. But even here, God helps us. If you know the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. Even here, as we wait, God gives us his help by his Spirit, if we are open to it. Sometimes it's a question of perspective. The more we pray in small groups with one another, the more we share testimony of how God is at work in one another's lives, the more we will see answers to prayer. The more we will learn to see and spot how God is at work, not just in our lives, but in others too. It's one of the beauties of small groups. And that can increase our level of expectation. So we aren't those who expect nothing and are never disappointed. It increases our confidence in God as we do see him at work in others. Sometimes the issue is a little closer to home. You may have heard the example preachers give sometimes of of sponges. You know, when you're washing a car or something and you you, you put the the, the sponge in the water and it comes out and there's water overflowing everywhere. And the idea is that as we are filled and soaked in the Holy Spirit, so we too overflow. But if, like me, you're not very good at doing stuff like that very frequently, what happens to your sponge? (laughs) It dries up, doesn't it? And it becomes hard. And when a hardened sponge is shoved in water, it doesn't take up any water. The outside gets a bit wet, but it certainly doesn't come out full. It takes time in the water for the sponge to soften, to become a sponge again, to suck up the water. Now, sometimes what can harden us as Christians to be like those dry sponges is time in the real world, which is full of temptation and distraction and pressures. Life is not easy. Sometimes what can harden us is the disappointment of unanswered prayers over many years. Sometimes, if we're really honest, we're tired and weary and we just can't be bothered. We quite like being stuck in the little dry bucket or by ourselves, without any demands on our time. I don't know about you, but I want more. I want to bring God all of my worries and my longings and my struggles, but I also want to lift my eyes to see beyond them, to see beyond myself, to God's bigger story. I don't want to reduce God and try and squeeze him into my story. I want to be part of his I want to be the Ben he's calling me to be. Not so he can sort out all my problems, but so I can be his witness. Just as he commanded those disciples. Although interestingly, it's not a command. It's a description. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Too often I'm like a hardened, dry sponge. But I don't want to be. I want to be soaked in the Spirit of God. 
I want to overflow with his life and his love. So it quite naturally overflows into bearing witness to Jesus. Now I wonder how, if you did indeed in your heads, answer Jesus' question from earlier. What do you want me to do for you? In a few moments, I'm going to give us all an opportunity to, to bring those things to God, but also to put ourselves into his story. And I hope as well, for those of us whose hearts feel like dried out, hardened sponges, time to dip ourselves into the living waters, to begin that process of softening our hearts to receive an overflow with the Spirit of God. But before that, I'm going to end with a story that Kathy Bartlam shared with me this week. Uh, she gave me permission to share it this morning because she's not here. Now, as she does every day, Kathy was out walking Stevie on one of the fields near their house, and uh, she suddenly re- Stevie's their dog, by the way, in case you didn't know who Stevie was. <laughs> she was out walking with Stevie, and she suddenly realized she couldn't see him. She started to call out his name, and uh, she's looking around the edges of the field to see if there's any sort of rustling in a bush, which is a sort of clue that there's a dog inside the bush. But she couldn't see any movement at all, just scanning the horizon. She was getting worried, thinking that he'd run away and left her. And then she looked down and saw him snuffling in the grass and realized he'd been by her side the whole time. There are a few pictures that I've shared with you this morning. One or two of them may have spoken to you, I don't know, I hope so. It may be that different ones have spoken to different people. First, we had the sponge. There are two kinds of sponge. There was the picture of the one that's overflowing with water and the one that's very dry and hardened. There's that picture of Kathy searching for Stevie and then realizing he's right there by her side. There's the picture of baptism about that drenching and soaking in the living water. Now, if any of those pictures have spoken to you about where you feel this morning or where you'd like to be this morning... I invite you to come forward and pray with these wonderful folk here from our prayer ministry team. If you feel God prompting you or nudging you in any of those things, please don't go home without responding to that nudge. We'll begin with a a short time of silence. I will pray. And then as I say, if any of you would like to come forward and uh, be prayed with by the prayer ministry team, that would be great. So let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Be poured out on us, fill us, and make us new. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your goodness to us, for your faithfulness to the Father. And now, Lord, we pray for that gift of the Spirit to soften our hearts, to equip and inspire us, to make us new to meet us where we are in our struggles and our pain. To help us take our place within your story.